As I read Psalm 132, please respond using the refrain from Psalm 136. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathath. We found it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you in the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Give the Lord, for he is good. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons shall also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. Thanks to the Lord. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Thanks to the Lord our God. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Father God, this morning, we pray, Father, that um, it would be your voice, your spirit, that would be our teacher. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are present with us. Would you bring light to us? Would you encourage us this morning? Would you bring our hearts and our focus of our minds onto you? And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Does this sound all right? Is this going to work? There? That's better, isn't it? So did you uh, enjoy the eclipse? Did you go out and look up into the sun? You're not supposed to do that. You know that, don't you? So honestly, I thought it was a bit disappointing, didn't you? Some of you, I went out and nothing much happened. And we went out with our little glasses and we looked up and it got vaguely dark. And I thought, coming from a country where there are regularly dark objects that obscure the sun, I'm not desperately excited by this. Those dark objects in my country are called clouds. What is so exciting about the sun being obscured? Not very much, you might say. Now, I know, of course, that's not what it's about. But actually, as we looked up, me and my children and the neighborhood kids looked up through our little dark glasses at the sun, it was actually quite extraordinary. And the extraordinary thing is not that it got dark, or perhaps the birds stopped singing, though I'm not sure they really did, or the strange light, that. but it was something to do with, as we we looked up, 
that we became aware in a way that we're not normally aware of what the sun really is and what we are standing on. There was this extraordinary sort of shift in perception and we became almost intensely aware of the reality that we stand on this rock spinning in space and it only takes a moon to move between us and a burning ball of gas. And it just made it, it's very, very, uh, I don't know, it evoked in me anyway, just a sense of awe. A shift in perception that came because something that is normally present had become obscured, absent. And the psalm that we read, Psalm 132, is all about presence and, in fact, absence. The psalm remembers a king, King David, who, as the psalm records, swears, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. For King David, it was not enough to know about God. It was not enough to believe in God's promises. David could not rest until God was present with him in his city in Jerusalem. And what's really behind that statement and this psalm is the story of the journey of the Ark of the Covenant. Do you remember the Ark of the Covenant? Have you ever seen Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom? I, I decided that I ought to educate my kids um, by showing them classic films. My kids are 13, 12, and 8. So I said, let's watch Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. That's a good family film. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> They were nightmares. But anyway, yes, that Ark of the Covenant. And the psalm is remembering the story of the journey of the Ark of the Covenant with the people of Israel to Jerusalem. And you might remember that the Ark of the Covenant, which was effectively a box, an acacia wood box inlaid with gold, was the place that housed or carried the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments which Moses had put down on two tablets of stone. And that moment when the commandments were written down, the Ten Commandments were written down on two tablets of stone, happened where? On Mount Sinai, in the presence of God. I don't know if we can just bring up this scripture from Exodus. Moses went up the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. What that's telling us is that on Mount Sinai, Moses enters into the presence of God, and it's there that he receives the word of God. And so right at the beginning of the story of Israel, you get this immediate association between the Word of God and the presence of God. Not as an abstract idea, but as a reality. The ark is then housed in the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a little tent that Israel carried with her through the desert as Israel journeyed from Egypt to outer slavery towards the Promised Land. They built this little tent for God. Isn't that nice? A little tent, and at the back of the tent, which is a sort of traveling thing that kings in the Near East would always have, 
And when God said to Israel, build me a tent, he wasn't saying, I need a tent. He was saying, you know how other ancient Eastern kings have, uh, tent, kings have tents? Well, now you're going to make me your king, and I'm going to have a tent. And at the back of the tent was housed the Ark of the Covenant. And wherever Israel went, the Ark of the Covenant went too. The presence of God went with Israel as they journeyed. So they set out, Numbers says, from the Mount of the Lord, three days' journey. This is Israel now setting out, having been given the Ten Commandments. And the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord went before them, three days' journey, to seek out a resting place for them. And what you're going to see if you read through the story of Israel is whenever the presence of God lifted, they would move. Whenever the presence of God settled, they would stay. And whenever the ark sent out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousands of Israel. And if you look in Psalm 132, you get an echo of that language. Arise, O Lord. So what you're getting here is a picture of the incredible dependence of the people of God on the presence of God. They do not move. They do nothing until the presence of God moves. But then as the story goes on, there's a time when actually the presence of God is taken away from Israel. Israel faced a number of enemies. Sometimes when they're facing her enemies, they sent the Ark of the Covenant first. So the presence of God would go before Israel and would, as it were, send the enemies fleeing. But one time, it doesn't seem to work. We don't know why exactly. And the Ark of the Covenant is captured by the Philistines. So the Philistines now have God in a box, if you will. They've got it. And they think, this is good news. We've got Israel's God. So they take and they put it in their temple. But they find that whenever they put the presence of God in their temples, unfortunate things start to happen. Their idols fall over, and wherever they take it, plague breaks out in their cities. And they try this three or four times, being Philistines, they're not very quick. And eventually they decide, this is not good to have, the presence of God. This is bad news, and they say, let's give it back. Give this thing back to Israel. So that's what they do. And this is from 1 Samuel. So they sent messengers to the inhabitants, inhabitants of, um, and sorry, they, they send the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant back, and it sits in a house of a, a man called Abinadab. Abinadab was Saul, King Saul's son. And this, what you read in Psalm 132, was the moment when David says, actually, we need the presence of God back, because the presence of God sat in Abinadab's house for 20 years. If Abinadab had been your friend, you would have gone round to his house for a beer or whatever, and you said, what, what's, what's in the back room? Oh, that's the presence of God. Oh, okay. And David, who succeeds Saul, this is a tragedy, that the presence of God was not in the city of God, Jerusalem, was an absolute tragedy. So this is what it's recorded in 1 Samuel 6. So they sent messengers, this is David, to the inhabitants of kiriath saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. 
And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated it to his son, Eleazar, to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From that day, the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim a long time past, some 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. When you read in Psalm 132, behold, we heard, it, heard of it in Ephrathath, very good effort on that one, I don't know if I've got it better, Ephrathah perhaps, we found it in the fields of Ja'ar, that's what it's remembering. It's remembering the moment when David said, hey, where's the presence of God gone? Oh, it's within Abinadab's house. And the word there, Ja'ar, means wood or thicket, and it's kind of drawing attention this incongruous, rustic abode for the presence of God. It's in the wrong place. It should be with the people of God. Why would you leave the presence of God languishing in an incongruous, rustic abode? Why would we, perhaps, the church, sometimes ignore the need for the presence of God? I mean, even humanly speaking, we know that presence, the real, real presence of a person, matters. There's a story of a soldier. And this soldier was a brave fellow, and um, he wanted to go off to war. He had a girlfriend, and he wanted to marry her, but he said, first I need to go to war, prove I'm a man. And she said, I don't want you to go to war. He said, I'm going. He said, I'm going to write to you every day, I promise. And when I come back, we'll get married. So he went off to war, and he had his adventures, and he was true to his promise. And every day, the postman delivered a letter. Day after day, the letters came, and every day, the postman brought this woman a letter. She did get married in the end. She married the postman. <laughs> Presents matters. There's an artist called Maria Abramovich, and she did this uh, installation art piece, a little pretentious, yes, at the Museum of Modern Art up in New York, and the, the art piece was simply this, that she set up a chair, two chairs facing each other, and she invited people who had come to the Museum of Modern Art to sit with her for 15 minutes in complete silence in the presence of each other. Just sit in each other's presence. And some of the reactions of the people who did that were recorded on videotape. You can find them on YouTube. And that simple thing of sitting and dwelling, if you will, in the presence of a real person produced tears, laughter, grief, simply by sitting in the presence of a person. And I think it's something that culturally we are losing the ability to do. We do not know how to sit still with each other. I'm as distracted as anybody else. I've got kids. I've got a mobile phone. And it's something that I try, sometimes in vain, to practice with my kids, just to sit with them and be still, and not necessarily say or do anything. Because I know, and if you work in pastoral ministry, you will see this, that we are losing this ability in families, 
Husbands and wives are losing the ability to sit with each other in silence. You may be physically present in the house, but you can be emotionally and absent and absent in all sorts of other ways. Families are being torn apart by the simple lack of ability to sit in each other's presence. I grew up in my family, which was in many ways a wonderful family, but I grew up with a profound sense of absence. The reasons were complex, but because of that sense of absence of presence, I became a very, very angry young man. Happened quite early. I was about 10 years old. At about 10 years old, and of course, when you're 10, you don't really think these things very rationally through, but I made a very, very profound decision, which was essentially this. I will never make myself vulnerable to anybody. I'm going to fight this journey of life, whatever that is, on my own. Johnny talked a little bit about a woman called Brenny Brown. And she talks about this thing of the necessity of vulnerability to be fully alive. Well, I went the opposite direction. I said, I'm going to make myself invulnerable. And that task, as it were, consumed me as I started to fight my own little corner. And it led to anger and eventually, quite early on, in my early teens, to severe depression. And that depression ate my life for about 15 years. All through my teenage years, all through my uh, you know, young adulthood, all through college, I was fighting depression. Depression was like a cloud that obscured the sun. It consumed me. And it wasn't until I was 30, 32 that church or anything to do with church or God came into my life. And here's the thing. It happened through a friendship with a girl, and she took me to church. It was a long story. But when I entered that church, I met a presence. It's very hard to describe what it was like walking into this church. It was a church that knew how to hunger after and seek for the presence of God. And when I walked in, I met this presence. It's the only way I can describe it. And in that church, understanding nothing about the gospel, not really liking church, or particularly the people who were there, I wept and I cried, and I knew that I had come home. I had come home. And it took me a long time to associate that problem, no, not too long actually, to associate that presence with Jesus, quite like Jesus, he's nice. It took me a longer time, much longer time, to associate that presence with Father God, and a very long time to understand that presence in terms of God's Word and the Scriptures, that as it were, they were all one. They were not separate. They were not different. The presence of God changes everything, and that's what Psalm 132 recognizes. This is what it says in verse 13, for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for His dwelling place. God longs to be present. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. And then you kind of get this list of the effects of presence, the effects of the presence of God. I will abundantly bless her, that is Israel, her, her provisions. I will satisfy 
her poor with bread. It's a little glimpse of the coming of the kingdom of God that Jesus would speak about so much more. That in the presence of God, which of course is supremely comes in the person of Jesus, there would be, as it were, material effects around him. Her priests, the psalm go on, I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. Presence will make a spiritual difference, a shift, a change, a profound shift. There, the psalm goes on, I will make a horn to sprout for David. I prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. And if you want to read a good commentary on the the psalms, pick up a book, uh, a commentary by Derek Kidner. And he says, look, these three terms, horn, lamp, and crown, they carry this great sense of strength and clarity, and in fact, royal dignity being bestowed by the presence of God. And the word crown is the same as for the high priest's mitre. Here is a kind of kingly, priestly thing that is descending on Zion because of the presence of God. It's drawing attention, symbolizing the king's hallowing. It's not power alone, it's holiness. And the expression will shine means literally to blossom. Something's blossoming. It's a sort of reminder that with God comes life, vitality. It's not like the things we create. We cannot create life. We can do a lot of things, but we can't create life. Only the presence of God brings life. And unlike his father, Saul, David longed, sorry, not his father, I'm sorry, unlike the king who went before him, Saul, David longed for God's presence in Jerusalem. That's what this psalm is remembering. And David goes, because this, um, the presence of God is sitting in the ark in Abinadab's house, and David says, we've got to go and get this back. We have got to go and get the ark and bring it into Jerusalem. So he sends a little team down to go and get the ark, and we get a little record of a man called Utsar. Utsar is probably one of the most unfortunate men in the scriptures. Utsar goes down with David's men to do the king's uh, bidding, goes to get the ark. And you might remember a little incident where the ark nearly falls off because of the oxen, and Utsar puts his hand out to stop it falling, and he dies. You get this incredible sense of the holiness of God. And David, at that point, throws a kind of hissy fit. He gets confused and becomes angry and afraid. What is this thing, the presence of God? I don't know whether I want it now or not. Do I want it? Yes or no? And so there's another little delay. And they put the presence, the ark, in a house of a man called Obed-Edom. Obed-Edom. He's one of my favorite characters in the Bible. He's terribly insignificant. Obed simply means servant. Servant of Edom. Maybe he was one of David's bodyguards. We don't really know. But now, Abinadab had the presence of God, now Obed-Edom has the presence of God, and it stays there for about three months while David gets over his hissy fit, and then the Scriptures record that David sees that Obed-Edom's house is greatly blessed because the presence of God is there. And so David then comes again to get the ark, and you'll remember he takes it up into Jerusalem and he dances in front of the whole gathered assembly in his underwear. He's so excited by the arrival of the presence of God. And Obed-Edom is an interesting little story. You see, Obed-Edom could have stayed where he was as the ark was taken up into Jerusalem. He could have said, I've had the blessing. It's great. I've had a fantastic, you know, I've been blessed. But Obed-Edom says, having had a taste 
of the blessing of the presence of God, I cannot get away from it. I cannot. I have to go. I have to go. And he journeys with the ark, leaves his home, and he becomes a gatekeeper, a musician, and a doorkeeper for the ark of the covenant when it is finally brought to Jerusalem. And he's actually recorded with Aspar, the chief musician of Israel. So his name is there because he was one who hungered after the real presence of God. And of course, the ark now of the presence of God is you and me. We are the ark of the presence of God, his dwelling place. We are the place where word and spirit meet. So I'll leave you with this question. If David hungered, fought for, suffered for, the psalm actually says, the presence of God, are we willing to do the same? Do we have that same kind of hunger? Because if we are, and I know you are as a church, interested in mission, then we must understand that our mission is to bring and to be the presence of God in the world. It's not our ideas that matter, although that does matter. Fundamentally, what the church needs, or the world needs, is a present church, a church that is present to us, a church that is present to God and is present to the world and brings God's presence into the world. And that's the, what this Psalm 132 really begs the question for us. Are we hungry for the presence of God? Or are we actually kind of leaving it in somebody else's house? This is what David said, and I'll finish with this. I will not enter my house or get into my bed, he says. I'm not going to sleep or let my eyes slumber until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Let's pray. Father God, this morning, we thank you that your presence is here. We thank you that among your gathered people, you are here too. So Lord, as we continue in worship, as we come to take communion together, that great sign, that great moment in the liturgy when we acknowledge your presence, when we feed, we come to feed off your presence. Would you awaken the hunger in us? Would we not come or go any further this morning without desiring you, desiring your presence in our lives? And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.